These revivals that we pray for every week have always been precipitated throughout history by uh, marked diligence in prayer, especially corporate prayer. If you haven't been part of our corporate prayer on Sunday evenings, that's growing, and I invite you to join us if revival is what you want. I think that's a good start. Although we are going through the book of 2 Corinthians, I don't think I can preach through the second chapter of 2 Corinthians without going back and seeing what Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is talking about the pain involved in uh, his thoughts of visiting this church, the affliction and the anguish of his heart and the many tears he's shed. A large part of this pain and anguish and the tears had to do with church discipline. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul had instructed the church to discipline a man. So certainly this is not something I relish preaching, but uh, it is in the Word of God and we will talk about it. Um, John Frame uh, helpfully uh, brought me to a place of understanding that this is not just something in 1 Corinthians 5 or uh, in some relatively unknown places in Scripture. It's all through the Scripture. He says, My childhood church taught me the Bible pretty well, but they taught me almost nothing about church discipline. After I grew up, however, I was somewhat stunned by the discovery that church discipline is a major theme of the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, we learn that God excluded Adam and Eve from the garden after they violated his command. In the time of Abraham, God said that any male of the covenant family would be cut off if he were not circumcised. In the law of Moses, God punished many sins by this kind of exile. Later, God expelled the whole nation of Israel from the promised land because of their idolatry, their oppression of the poor, and their failure to care for the land. In the New Testament, Jesus establishes a rule of discipline in the church, beginning with individual confrontation, continuing with church involvement. If the offender is not repentant, the conclusion is to let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Paul later devotes a whole chapter, this chapter that we're about to read, to urge the Corinthian church to cast out a man who had been committing incest with his father's wife. Scripture also calls the church to discipline people because of some kinds of theological errors and false teaching. So we'll see that it's not just 1 Corinthians 5 or a relatively unknown passage, uh, probably for many of you, uh, but it's all through the Scriptures. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Holy Word? 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, 
but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, or reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Amen. Please be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray that your Holy Spirit would enliven our hearts, open our minds to understand the teaching, the truth that you are telling us this morning, that we would put it into our hearts and we would practice it in our lives, that indeed we would value your church, the church that you have made, the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So certainly when many people think of church discipline, the worst possible things come to your mind. We've all heard of stories of horrible pastors or elders um, who have, uh, for their own selfish reasons maybe, um, applied Christ's discipline to people in the church. It's hard, I think, especially for you know, Americans, independently-minded people who really feel like this is all just my own life is my own business, government stay away from me, I don't need anyone's help with anything. This kind of rolls over into our attitude about church. I don't need the church to tell me anything. I don't need any old grumpy men, these elders of the church, to point out my faults. Many of people who call themselves Christians in our country have rejected the church altogether, possibly because of their experiences with church discipline. And this own, I mean, this church has seen its own share of horrible, horrible discipline applied. Satan has tried to destroy this church many times over the past 200 years. If you read the histories that are written, the blue history in the back is my favorite, but they're both uh, adequate in explaining how many times Satan has really tried to destroy us. You might need to read between the lines a little bit, but it's there. 20 years ago, this is probably the most recent, there was a pastor named Jim Thornton, and he personally excommunicated everyone in the church who disagreed with him. How is this possible? Well, the elders had left or quit. I don't know the whole story. I mean, there were people who were here who can tell you uh, because they were here in the church at the time. He um, appointed his teenage son to this kangaroo court, and they just started excommunicating people. Uh, Sweet old ladies were excommunicated for refusing to shake his hand in the back. And unfortunately, this kind of story is something that we all have heard of, if not experienced Horrible, evil elders or pastors using the discipline of the church of Jesus Christ for personal selfish reasons, being used by Satan. So it's important for us to understand exactly what the scriptures say about church discipline. It shouldn't be anything that we recoil from. It should be something that we embraced. 
So my plan is to go through 1 Corinthians 5 and then also just to talk about discipline in general, what the Bible says about it, so that we have good context when we come back next week to 2 Corinthians. Because in 2 Corinthians, Paul's on the backside of the discipline. And the man, we think, has repented and come back to the church. So let's look at the discipline in Corinth. Um, prior to this, this letter, the first the letter called 1 Corinthians, um, the church was in a bad place. As you read, there was a man who had married his father's wife. And Paul is horrified. He says not even the pagans tolerate this kind of incest. And yet they were arrogant. They were accepting the church was. So he said, let this person be removed from among you, delivered to Satan, with the hope really that he would repent. Uh, And this is a a difficult passage for sure, that you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. This means... Almost certainly that by removing him from church fellowship, in effect you're turning him over to the kingdom of Satan, which is the whole world apart from Christ. Uh, remember in Romans chapter 8, Paul characterizes the unredeemed person as a person who lives according to the flesh. And he says the person who lives according to the flesh cannot please God. It's that whole idea of flesh, that his flesh would be destroyed. In other words, his the ways of his flesh would be destroyed and he would come back in repentance. That's the goal, that his spirit would be saved. And this is Paul's hope, really. And it seems like in Second Corinthians that this may have happened. This is one interpretation. The one that I favor is that Second Corinthians we read of someone who has come back and Paul's urging forgiveness for the man. With excommunication, this... This is always shaky. We don't know what's going to happen. When someone's excommunicated, there's always two options. There's the option of repentance and coming back into fellowship. Certainly there's another road that is often taken, and that is that the person just goes on their own, remains impenitent, and stays gone. But we don't know the status of someone's heart. Only God does. Our prayers always that the discipline would bring the person back. The reality is, though, for the impenitent, it simply reveals their colors. As John said in 1 John 2.19, those who left us and never returned just show that they were never part of us in the first place. It's not like you can lose your salvation. You can't lose what you never had. So the the fact that they never returned, that they grew hard in their sin, reflects that they just weren't believers. But the one who is redeemed will repent and return to the covenant community. This is the whole purpose of excommunication, is repentance. And he later says that it's not only in this one specific case. We read all the different things that he says should um, force the church to act. Um, Not to associate with anyone, verse 11, who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. Not to even eat with such a person. And he says, purge the evil person from among you. So our modern psyche hears these words and just shrivels up, don't we? We don't like the sound of that. And we'll talk about why we don't like it uh, in the next few minutes. 
But the reality is it's a biblical concept that the church applies discipline when required. So let's look at the background of discipline for a moment. Um, There's a couple things that I think you have to understand before you can even get to the point of church discipline. Um, One of those is that membership is implied. You can't discipline someone who's not in the family. Can you imagine if a kid came over to spend the night at your house when your children were young and he did something that was wrong and you pulled out your belt and started whacking him? He's not your child. You can't discipline someone who's not in the family. The Bible necessitates church define its membership, and not just for the reason of discipline, but for many reasons. It's all through the Old Testament. The membership roles were an important part of life. If you weren't able to prove that you're part of the covenant community by family, by your own circumcision, by the uh, worship of your family, uh, then all the great privileges and responsibilities of the covenant community were not going to be yours any longer. And the Jews of the early church naturally carried this practice over, helpfully, into the New Testament. By God's Holy Spirit, we see much about membership in the New Testament. Remember in Acts chapter 2, it says God increased their number by about 3,000. Hmm. So they, they knew what it was, and they knew that it increased 3,000. Who was counted among the 3,000? Were those counted who just showed up to listen to Peter preach? but didn't really buy in? Were those counted who just kept coming, but weren't really sure that they believed it yet? No, certainly opposed to that, there were actually 3,000 added to their number, the number. They knew who they were. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, we see that the church is voting for deacons. They were selecting deacons and then presenting them to the apostles to be ordained as deacons. Who gets to vote? Who gets to select? Just whoever shows up that day? Anyone passing on the street who wants to hear Peter preach? Certainly there were only members who were voting and selecting these deacons. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, we see another reason why membership is implied. We say that church leaders are watching over your souls. Elders have to give an account to God for your souls. So whose souls am I responsible for shepherding? Whose souls are Jerry, is Jerry responsible for shepherding? Just anyone who comes and visits the church? Certainly we care for them, we love them, but who are we going to be held accountable for? Every Christian in the whole world that we know? Well, certainly those in the local body of Christ, those members of this church. And the final point, of course, we cannot... Read 1 Corinthians 5 without knowing that there is a real membership, that this person has been cast out from a membership. So membership is a given for all discipline. And that's why we encourage and we value membership in a way that's really countercultural here at Meadow Creek, and most PCA churches do value membership because it's right and it's biblical to submit yourself to godly leaders and to hold them accountable as well. When it comes to church membership, or sorry, church discipline, we also see that this is one of the marks of a real church. You remember when the reformers left the Roman Catholic Church, it was a place of great heresy. It wasn't even a place where true worship existed. And when they left, they had to kind of step back from all of that and search the scriptures and define what defined, what constituted 
a real church? What made a real church? And Calvin and Luther all had their ideas, and then Theodore Beza, the successor of Calvin in Geneva, summarized this biblical idea the best. Three things that we still look at today. The right preaching of the Word of God, the proper administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. And if you're like me, the first time you heard that, you thought, church discipline constitutes a real church? That's one of the marks of a real church? But it is a reality and it's a necessity that each one of these factors is critical for having a real church. The preaching of the word must be correct. The sacraments must be properly administered. Remember, they had just come out of Roman Catholicism where nothing about the sacraments was right. But certainly the standards of Scripture and the gospel must be enforced when necessary. The church defines its standards and its membership based on the Bible and must discipline those who refuse those standards, those biblical standards. But the fact that most churches, I believe, are fearful of church discipline reflects, like we've talked about already, kind of a modern rejection of all authority. You're not going to tell me what to do. This very individualistic nature of the spiritual life of most modern Americans. We talked at our home group a few uh, days ago that over 50% of evangelicals, those who confess Christ, believe that just worshiping at home is okay. I don't need the body of Christ. I'll make my own little church. This rejection of the community of faith certainly allows each person to set their own standards for faith. But how are they going to partake of the Lord's Supper? How are they going to baptize? How are they going to preach the Word? And how are they going to discipline without elders? Certainly Beza is right. A church that doesn't practice discipline is not a biblical church. Or a church that doesn't pre- the true, preach the true gospel. Or teach the true gospel. Or a church that doesn't administer the sacraments. So let's quickly talk about why church discipline should be important to all of us. One of the reasons why is because the church is called to holiness. We're called to be different, to to be set apart from the world individually and as a church. We're to be a different people. We've all been regenerated. We are new creations. It's by our love for one another that all the world knows that we are Christ's. We're called to be separate and holy. So we must biblically teach the standards of God by which a person can remain in fellowship. And there is an objective standard. It's not a sliding rule. It doesn't go back and forth. It's not like homosexuals were allowed to openly be members or open homosexuals were allowed to be members today, but it's only because we've been enlightened and they couldn't have done this before. No, the standard is, is one. And that's just one case. Unfortunately, almost all cases of discipline Almost all of them are related to some kind of sexual sin. You look all through the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, you look at 1 Corinthians 5. This seems to be the way Satan comes after people in the church. We see the same thing today, of course. Even our own denomination is struggling over the sexual sin of homosexuality. How is it to be handled? How is it to be addressed? And certainly we must note that everyone is welcome to come to church. I've been asked this question four or five times. 
Are homosexuals welcome in your church? Well, absolutely. They need to hear God's word. Come. But you probably will not, almost certainly will not be able to say, I'm a homosexual Christian and be welcomed into membership. Why? Because there's a standard. You flee from your sin and you run to your Savior. And we would hope that all of us would would do the same exact thing, would run to our Savior. Certainly we all sin, but let's not confuse ourselves that some sins are not more heinous than others. They truly are. You remember Jesus when he talked to Pilate? He said, the one who handed me over to you has committed the greater sin. There's a reason why there's Ten Commandments and not 100 Commandments. The Ten Commandments are very important. Homosexuality, all kinds of adultery of sexual sin have always been seen as outrageous in the church. And these must be quickly and forcefully dealt with. They must. And any persistent sin, really, is going to be dealt with. So I also want to address kind of the third point, and that is there's this attitude, I believe, all over our land, but even in the church, that, well, who are you to judge me? The elders judge me? Really? Doesn't the Bible, didn't Jesus say, don't judge lest you be judged? Well, certainly that's a misapplication of that particular point. Jesus is talking about a judgmental attitude of looking down your nose at everyone else like the Pharisees would and counting your righteousness against their unrighteousness. It has nothing to do with discipline. Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, Jesus talks about discipline. In fact, the only three times Jesus mentions the church, ecclesia in Greek, he's talking specifically about discipline. Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. I believe uh, our confession is helpful. It says, the officers of the church, to them the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed by virtue whereof they have the power respectively to retain and remit sins, referring to Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, to shut the kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures, to open it to penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by the absolution from censures as occasion shall require. I encourage you to go back and read Jesus' words in Matthew 16 and 18 as he talks about how the church will discipline. He gave Peter the keys of the kingdom to shut the kingdom to some, to open it to others, to bind and to loose. And he says, wherever you are doing these things, there I am in the midst of you. In other words, I've given the church authority to act on my behalf. So how does the church go about retaining and remitting sins and binding and loosing I thought that was God's job to do that. Well, certainly, God is the judge. And it's a terrible responsibility that the church leadership is given. And certainly, Jerry and I take it very seriously. But God uses the workings of discipline to bind the impenitent into their sin, just as He uses the preaching of the gospel to welcome the penitent into God's family. He's ordained to use His church and the leaders for His glorious purposes. What a heavy thing to contemplate. But really, God uses the church in a macro perspective to discipline all of us. When you hear the preaching of the word and the Holy Spirit impresses it upon your hearts and you change your life, you're experiencing church discipline 
from the pulpit in a small way. And this really is the way that most of us are disciplined. But there are some times when people fall into serious or persistent sin. And the elders must confront and correct this. Those who are repentant certainly are welcome, but the unrepentant are disciplined. This is a key understanding as well. If you're repentant, you're not going to be disciplined. It's not like we're going to to remove you from the body if you're repentant. The only people who are ever disciplined are the unrepentant. We approach you and you say, no, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to live the way I want to live. Get out of my life. Well, I'm sorry, that's not acceptable. It's only the unrepentant who face any discipline ever. So discipline is so important. And it's a heavy responsibility. And for the elders of your church, wherever you worship, not to engage in discipline is to forsake the word of God and what they have been told to do by Christ himself. And we see this in our families as well. And you've seen families, if you've ever been into uh, you know, Walmart or some shopping center, and you see some kids that are just absolutely crazy, walking around with mom, just throwing stuff in the basket and screaming at her and crying. and They're absolutely undisciplined and indulged. And the parents are either, well, they're either just exhausted or they think they're helping the child by not spanking him. Like this is more loving not to discipline him. The reality is they're harming the child. Proverbs says they hate their children if they don't discipline them. It's the loving parent that seeks to discipline the child, to correct the child's behavior. And it's the same for the church family. A church that doesn't discipline doesn't really care about its people. It doesn't love them. Which is why we seek to discipline in a godly and right way. And this is very important for all true saints. And the main, the main reason I believe that discipline is so important for us is that it vindicates the honor of Christ. This is what our confession says, and I believe this is right. Jesus in Matthew 16 talks about the kingdom of God and the keys being given to the elders, to the apostles, and then the elders after them of every church. It vindicates the honor of Christ. By implication, it dishonors Christ when it's not applied or applied poorly. Why is that? Because Christ came to earth leaving His heavenly glory. The Son of God came down to earth as a man. The immortal to help the mortal. The holy for the unholy. The righteous one for the wicked. The glorious for the common. And He came and died on a cross so that we might be His people. And that all who would come to Him in repentance and faith really will be His children forever. Adopted and glorified and justified. And as we turn to the Lord's Supper, it's certainly a time where we remember all that God has done for us. Let us pray now before we begin to partake of the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your mercy to us. We thank you for all the gifts you have given us, for all the instruction of your word. We thank you for the precious sacraments which turn our hearts to Christ. We also thank you that you have given us a mandate as a church to uphold your holy standards, to ensure that the name and the 
the glory of Christ is vindicated as much as is possible by us on the earth. We pray in Jesus' name that you be glorified as we partake of your supper. In Jesus' name.